0: Every month we receive an electric bill intended for the previous resident of the house that we live in. I think she now lives in South Carolina, so it turns out to be her South Carolina electric bill. And despite repeated attempts to return it to Cinder and you know, to write across the front like she doesn't live here anymore, uh, the bill always finds its way back to us and now you know, promptly into the trash. But imagine if instead of a bill, it was a personal letter from one of her friends. It arrives every month. It it spills, I don't know, maybe like juicy details about uh, their life. Like maybe she talks about this epic trip they took to the Cayman Islands or or candidly expresses the challenges that that are happening in her marriage. I'd like to think that I could resist the voyeuristic desire to read her mail. Um, It would be tempting. It would be tempting, but... I mean, I realized it wouldn't do me any good. You know, why, why would I read it? Letters are special that way. They're, they're context-dependent communication between a sender and intended recipient meant for just the two of them. Well, then consider this. Reading the New Testament is like reading someone else's mail. You know, I'm struck by the fact that some of the most important pieces of literature in the Bible, the most important piece of literature in, in civilization happens to be personal letters written 2,000 years ago by people we've never met, you know, Paul, Peter, James, John, and a few others, intended for people we know very little about in places we, we are not remotely familiar with, and in a culture, in a cultural moment that we can, like, uh, we cannot hope to grasp, and yet, and yet, these are not pieces of junk mail that are supposed to be discarded, or thrown into the trash, or returned to cinder. Like, we're supposed to somehow bring their wisdom into, in our, into our time and place. Yeah, 22 of the 27 books of the New Testament are letters. It, it seems fairly strange to me. Like, why would God inspire context-dependent personal correspondence and expect us to, like, get it? Two thousand years l- later, living in, as we do in such a different uh, time and in a different place culturally, uh, it, it's not. You know what? I mean, it's not even like we share any of the common understanding that Paul had, that Paul shared with, say, Thessalonica or or Corinth. I mean, in my opinion, uh, if we were to time machine back to two thousand years ago into one of those cities, it would be the equivalent of like space travel to Mars, and talking to Martians, because the way they thought, the cultural assumptions and values they operated with are, are almost incomprehensibly different than the, the way that we think in the world we live in today. I, I mean, I'm of the opinion, maybe it's overly skeptical of me, but that the, the only people that really understand what's going on in the mind of somebody in first century Greece are probably high-level um, Historians that have spent their entire life's work trying to you know learn and and know that cultural moment. When reading these letters in the New Testament, I think it's important for us to remember this at least that they shouldn't be regarded as one-size-fits-all documents that have like dropped down out of heaven, detached from their ancient place. Like if we really if we really want to listen to the letters and, and read them well then we're going to have to uh, study what they meant then and there, uh, and really be humble, I think, in, in uh, asking the Holy Spirit to like, bring that wisdom um, to us in, in our time. Now, it's a fun exercise as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I, I told you in the, the, ser- the email this week just how excited I was to start this new sermon series. Uh, First Corinthians, I was intimidated to preach it. I've never preached it before, but For some reason, I guess now is the time, (laughs) and now I feel ready to do it. What excites me about the letter, well, several things excite me about it. Number one, it gives us a glimpse into what life was like in a community of believers 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. Um, We we are watching the earliest followers of Jesus work out what it meant to walk with God in their time and place. That gets me excited. The other thing that I really love about the letter is we get to listen to them ask questions questions of Paul I can't think of anywhere else in the entire Bible where you get to listen to a group of people sort of go into the classroom and ask Paul question after question after question this is the only book we know what were they what were they thinking of what were they asking in their day what were they struggling with well as I'll explain in a minute uh, uh, we get to listen in in this letter uh, the last thing I want to say in this, the introduction to the series: there probably will be times as we go through the letter where I don't know how it applies, how how, how exactly it, it should apply in the 21st century. It's a challenging book in that regard, uh, and I'll tell you when I'm not exactly sure. Uh, but again, my attitude is that we should we should read with humility. We should be humble learners. And we should ask the Holy Spirit to cultivate whatever wisdom he was cultivating in them at that time and place, to come and and do the same with us. And so um, let's do that. Let's pray, and then we'll read the passage. O Holy Spirit, fount of every blessing, wind of God and refining fire, please, Lord, come and and help us to read someone else's mail, so to speak, which is is really our mail. The psalmist in Psalm 1 says, That he delights in your instruction, and we do too. So give us the wisdom to know and understand these ancient words and and how they ought to translate to our lives. Do do it so that we might become more like Christ, more like Jesus, more like, as the psalmist says, trees planted by flowing streams that bear fruit in its season, whose leaves do not wither. Um, Come and do that with us, we pray. And God's people said, amen. Uh, one of the things I'm going to do uh, during this series is I'm going to comment a little bit more while we're reading the passage. So just a heads up. Um, here we go. Paul, called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. People can't assign the title apostle to themselves. Um, you, and you can't vote on it as a group. It's not like a title of president or prime minister. The, off- the office of apostle is so special. Only Christ can appoint one. Uh, And and he can only do so directly. It can only happen through a personal appearance of Jesus. The office carries with it special signs and miraculous powers that serve to validate somebody uh, being or not being an apostle. And so there are a few guys around today who call themselves apostle, but I don't see them working, you know, miraculous signs and wonders. And and I haven't heard of Jesus uh, directly appointing them, so that wouldn't fit uh, their case. It did Paul on the Damascus road. Paul call an apostle, a lot of the letter is going to uh, uh, revolve around, like, questions about his apostleship. And, and is he really apostle? And he's not the kind of guy we were expecting, um, but more on that later. And he's, he also writes, and Sosthenes, our brother, verse 2, or the, verse 1 still. Sosthenes shows up in Acts chapter 18. He was a leader of the Jewish synagogue in Corinth, and at the end of that chapter, I don't remember if we read it when we were going through Acts, but he's essentially getting beaten by a mob um, at the end of the chapter, presumably because he had some kind of sympathy for Paul. Um, Well, here it is. Sosthenes, the Jew, head of the synagogue, has now become a Christian, and he's traveling with Paul, assisting Paul in writing and delivering his letters. And so it's kind of cool that he's included here at the beginning of the letter. Verse 2. Here we are, to 2. To the church... Of God in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints, with all those in every place who call on the name of our, our uh, of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. Sanctified and saints are, are fancy words that refer to being made holy or to be a holy people. And when Paul was using that kind of language, he was drawing it from Judaism because holiness. What God did with the children of Israel is he set them apart. He, he made them special among all the people of the world. Uh, they were to live a countercultural life, a holy life, and they were set apart to worship him. So to be holy means, in particular, to be admitted into the sanctuary, to, be at, to, be gain, to gain access into the presence of God. And then, of course, the most holy of all peoples were the, the priests, and they were admitted to the holiest places of the sanctuary. Well, here, Paul says that this Jewish idea of holiness extends to all people everywhere in the Roman Empire who uh, follow after Jesus the Messiah. Like, in other words, we all have access to the sanctuary. And, and really, on Sunday, what we're doing is, is, is putting that to practice. Verses 1 through th- verses 3 through 9, and I'll read through the rest of it now. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus, for in him, in Christ, you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into a fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. <clears throat> Number one, a sketch of the city. So where was Corinth located? Well, it's, it was situated on a very narrow strip of land that connected the northern landmass of Greece, which they called Achaia, with the southern landmass of Greece, which was uh, the Peloponnese. Uh, very narrow, like I think it was only um, five miles in, in its greatest uh, length. It had two ports as a result, one on the Aegean Sea and one on the Mediterranean Sea. So a very important, I mean, unique kind of city that actually has two uh, two ports. And as I said, the land bridge was so narrow that slaves would literally drag boats across the land, you know, carrying, you know, the ropes on their, ba- their bare backs. And so, um, yeah, it was basically like a land Panama Canal. It meant that a ship could avoid going to the south, sailing to the south for 200 miles, and so you could just imagine, like, a city with those kind of geographic features. Uh, it was um, it, it was quite the trade center. Was Corinth sin city? So much um, has been made of the fact, or at least pastors make of the fact, that Corinth was supposed to be, like, especially bad among the ancient world. You hear this, at least I hear this from other preachers playing it up. Like, they say that Corinth was... Kind of like Las Vegas, be- because of its high concentration of sailors. And with sailors, you get vice. But also because of the Temple of Aphrodite, which sat on the uh, uh, Acropolis, looking over the city. Go back a couple of slides, John, to that that first slide. There it is, uh, the, the Temple of Aphrodite. It, it was purported that there were a thousand sacred temple prostitutes who who worked the the, the temple there. Um, you know, to be honest, I, I just don't buy the sensationalized accounts. The, um, yeah, the, she was the patron god of the city, the goddess of sexual love. Um, I think that, that Aphrodite might interestingly factor into how we look at chapter 13 later on in the book, the, the great love chapter. We'll come back to that. Um, you know, others point out that the phrase to act like a Corinthian was a eu- eufem- euphemistic way to describe immorality. And still others point out that a Corinthian girl was a a phrase for um, a prostitute. What those preachers don't tell you, though, is that all of that comes from historical sources hundreds and hundreds of years before Paul arrives in the city. Um, I don't think that Corinth was any more crazy or decadent or sinful than Ephesus or Thessalonica. I mean, the fact is, and we'll come back to this again and again. The entire Roman world had sexual had sexual um, morals that were just so out of step with, with Judaism or with you know that of the early Christians. Um, yes, Corinth was large. It was cosmopolitan. It was rich. It was it was wealthy because of all the trade. Uh, it had a, a very upwardly mobile and status conscious. Uh, citizens in it. I and mean, you might even say status-obsessed citizens. It was certainly religiously pluralistic. You know, you had a temple to Aphrodite, a temple to Apollo, a, a, you know, all kinds of temples, dozens of temples, hundreds of statues and shrines. It was all of that, but what I guess I'm trying to just point out is it wasn't uniquely crazy town. Um, I mean, the truth is that Christians have always struggled with trying to figure out how to relate their new faith to the the culture in which they live. And so to suggest that Corinth is this especially dark place that I've heard it described as one part Las Vegas, one part Los Angeles, and one part New York City, which when I hear that, I think that would be a cool city to visit. But, um, you know, is this like uniquely scandalous? No. Um, The ways of Jesus— The ways of Jesus have always been out of step with the empire. You know what I think the biggest problem is in Corinth? Uh, And we'll come back to this in the future. I I think the biggest problem is they had wealthy and powerful people in the congregation who wanted to live as wealthy and powerful people, as members of the Greco-Roman social elite, like with all of the trappings of power and status and privilege. They had rich people who simply didn't want to embody the Beatitudes who didn't want to look and look and live like, you know, a, a Jewish carpenter. And so as we move through the letter each week, what I, what I hope I'll try and do is provide maybe a more nuanced vision of what this city might have been like and the, what its inhabitants um, were like. But that's just a really quick sketch of, of the place that we're traveling to. Number two, problems in the church. Uh, there were some. <laughs> you know, most of the people in the Corinthian church— they did not come from a Jewish background. They, were, they came out of paganism, and so they, had, they believed in various gods and goddesses and various practices. They just had very little, very, very little exposure to what we would think of as biblical instruction. They didn't have their Old Testament that they were learning from. Uh, this was a church that Paul, Paul knew quite well. He lived there for 18 months uh, teaching them. Well, if you fast forward in the story about five years later, so it, it was a, this church is about five years old. Uh, he is now working and living across the, uh, the sea in the city of Ephesus. And the people in Corinth, the, the Christians in Corinth, end up writing Paul a letter uh, to ask him some questions and to defend some of their practices. And we're able to basically piece together what it was that they wrote to him based on our reading of 1 Corinthians And so here are some of the things that stand out. Number one, it seems like they've adopted the common Greek idea that the physical world is bad, is evil, is loathsome. Um, They wanted to free the human spirit from the body. And one way they were trying to do this was to deny the body all of its pleasures. Like this is sort of the anti-hedonist. It's like we'll deny the body everything that's pleasurable. Uh, They didn't think that husbands and wives should be having sexual relations with each other because that's pleasurable. And so they were also encouraging um, engaged couples not to get married. And so they asked for Paul's advice on these practices. Number two, the desire to free the spirit from the body also led some of them to actually deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus. I mean, some of them were probably saying something along the lines of, we are already resurrected. We, we, We have already arrived. We're already, you know, full of the spirit and living, you know, the resurrected, in the resurrected spirit right now. And that's all that matters, and so it seems like what they do in their letter is they challenge Paul that if you want us to believe in a bodily resurrection of Jesus, then you, you need to you know, give us more details. Uh, so that's number two. Number three, there are a lot of questions about attending ceremonial meals that were held in, in oftentimes in the temple in honor of the pagan gods. They were arguing that their participation in these meals was, was spiritually harmless because, hey, we, we know they're not real gods. And besides, um, th- to those of us who are spiritual, they, they, divide, they, they seem to like ad- adopt this phrase, this phrase that goes like this, everything is permissible for us who are spiritual. And, and so, uh, you know, we've, if we've experienced spiritual enlightenment, then everything is permissible. Paul, they asked Paul about that. And then number four, in their worship services on Sunday, they did discover that God can make it so that people, Christians, can speak other languages that they've never studied before, and so that we call that speaking in tongues, and they were eager to receive this gift. It seems like they end up getting this gift in, in abundance, and they use it in their worship service, but then things kind of get a little crazy because also in the worship service, somebody is saying in tongues, Something to the effect of "Jesus be cursed," and so they're like, uh, "What's what's going what's going on here?" Uh, and, and you know, a lot's going on here, um, and and that's what Paul's going to address in the letter. Well, about the same time when Paul is in Ephesus, there was a servant of a woman by the name of Chloe. The servant had been doing business in Corinth and travels back to Ephesus and ends up letting the church know, Paul know that there's other problems going on in the church in Corinth. And they, like, tell Paul about it. For, they had divided into factions that were devoted to, like, one, one or the other of the great Christian leaders of that day. And it seems like these factions, which we'll see next week, were probably modeled around, like, exclusive philosopher um, clubs that were, that, that were prevalent um, in that time period. They had also really misunderstood or misapplied Paul's earlier advice that he had given them about how to deal with people in their community who were living immoral lives. And we're going to find a particular um, man in the community who's actually living with his mother and sleeping with his mother. And um, they misunderstood Paul on this. And and Chloe's servant, let's Paul know, uh, they were taking each other to court in lawsuits there was a dispute in, about head coverings in and worship and, and what women ought to be doing in worship, which then um, dovetailed with, finally, the, the biggest scandal, you might say, that was happening in the church was during worship, during their their love feast, the their Lord's Supper, when they were supposed to be having a shared meal together. Instead, the rich were eating in a specific place in the house church that they were meeting at, and it'll be fun for me, when we finally get there, to, like, show you the layout of an ancient, um, what we think would probably be the, like, the, the uh, architectural diagram of an ancient house that they would be meeting in. But the rich were eating by themselves in the, in the status-conscious place in that house, and they were just letting the poor Christians go hungry altogether. And so I know that was a lot of details, and you're probably thinking, that I didn't want to even know all of that right now. But um, there's a lot going on here, and it's all getting addressed in First Corinthians according to this structure. He'll first talk about divisions in the church— Then he'll go into an extended discussion about sex, followed by food, food customs, followed by worship, and then finally um, on the resurrection. What's kind of unique about the letter is it reads as a series of, kind of like a collection of essays on these various topics. So you kind of ping pong from one to the next to the next division, sex, food, worship, resurrection. So what? So what? (laughs) So what? Well, let me see if i can 't bring it you know, back to, to bear for, on us today. Um, imagine meeting someone who had a very difficult past who grew up in an unstable home or social environment. They become a Christian, and once they become a christian, their character, their character, uh, character n- uh, noticeably improves. Imagine you meet another person who let 's just say they 're a- an atheist. Um, but they, are, they grew up in a very loving and stable family background. They had a really healthy uh, modeling of what's right and wrong. They were given an impressively strong moral compass. If, you were, if we were just to take both of those people and you compare the Christian person to the atheistic person, I, suffice to say, I think suffice to say that the Christian wouldn't compare all that well like, without actually knowing each person's starting point and the life journey that they have been on, it would be easy to think, well, Christianity, I mean, it doesn't, it's not very valuable. It doesn't do very much. I mean, look at this guy. W- without knowing each person's starting point and the life journey they've been on, it's, it's easy to think, oh, look at this guy. What a hypocrite. Boy, these, these Christians are so hypocritical. They don't live up to the high ethical standards of Jesus. I don't want to be around Christians like that. I think one of my secret um, (laughs) aims in this series is to make you want to be in a group of Christians like the first Christian church of Corinth, (laughs) because I'm assuming um, you probably wouldn't. I probably wouldn't. My working assumption is that for the vast majority of us, if we walked into a carbon copy of this church, here in phoenix today like we'd probably turn around and walk right out i mean it it is it would be so far below our expectations of what a church should be or christians should be Uh, it would be very easy to despise these people who as we will see are very puffed up in their own pride yeah it's easy to despise prideful people and so turn into one yourself now, I think that it's really important that we have to always take people's own life story and experiences into consideration, especially before we pass some kind of judgment on them. Um, and if we really take that seriously, then we probably would go—we would be a lot easier on churches on the whole, right— if we took that seriously, that, that like, not all of us were endowed with the, the, the same great um, raw material to begin with and, and family of origin to begin with. Like, we would just have a whole lot more patience for the church to be a hospital and care of souls you know, rather than, you know, a comparatively uh, put together institution. You know, I, I think it was somebody who wrote that churches are hospitals for the soul, and generally those who go to hospitals are com- comparatively worse off than people that are visiting museums. I just think it would make us much more patient long suffering with the failures of other Christians, and even, you know, our own failures for that matter. So that's what I'm going for. I want you to want to, wanna, to wanna be with people like this, because Paul says, in spite of all your your stuff, you're really a church. You're, you really are saints. You really are holy, and you really have the Spirit. In spite of the fact that, like, we 21st century Christians, living as we do in our cultural moment, could, could meet you on a street, thanks to a time machine, and we might look down on you and despise you, but Paul's not doing that. Paul sees this, this young family as... It's just it's just that like youngsters that do have a lot of room to grow um, But they're still part of god's family and um, you know paul had seen how far They had come already where they had started and he saw the trajectory that they were on And so I like to keep that in mind as we deal with the church's problems. That's number two number three He does give thanks for these christians and he teaches us to be thankful in any and every circumstance and he tells us to think about those things which are noble, which are true, which are right, pure, and admirable in other persons. And you know what? He, he puts that into practice here at the beginning of the letter. So verses 4 and 5 start out the thanksgiving section. I realize that this was a standard way of writing letters in that day. You would say... Who you were, who is the recipient, and then oftentimes in Greco-Roman rhetoric, writing rhetoric, you would give thanks for whoever it is as your recipient. Um, I just don't think we should dismiss it as though these aren't this isn't real thanks because I think he's really thankful for them, and it's remarkable as I'll show in a second. I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus. He writes that you are enriched in Christ in every way in all speech and in all knowledge. Like, do you realize what he's doing? He's giving thanks to God for their spiritual gifts, even though he knows that these spiritual gifts are being put to bad use. They're not being used right. They're being abused. Like, he knows, he gives thanks for their, their giftings and their knowledge. He, even though he knows that that knowledge and, that, and those giftings are puffing them up with pride, I, I, it would, I would feel seriously puffed up with pride if I was given the ability to like all of a sudden deliver prophecies which is what they were doing in their church if I could just you know bust out in um, another language right now that I had never you know studied before um, if I had a word of knowledge if I could look at you and sort of know something about you and say like a word of God to you that I I shouldn't at all be able to know by my you know if I had those abilities I, I'd be puffed up too, and so would you. So what I'm saying is Paul gives thanks even though he knows they're putting him to bad use, even though he knows that, that they even look down on him. And if you think about it, the, the hardest people to, to give thanks for are those who, who are kind of like secretly despising you, right? You know, th- they viewed preaching in terms of Greek rhetoric they viewed wisdom in terms of Greek philosophy. They viewed apostles as all-conquering heroes who come to save the day. In every one of these regards, as we'll see, Paul did not stack up very well. Uh, they might have even said something along the lines of, yeah, he was a great evangelist, yeah, he planted the church, but, you know, poor old Paul, he doesn't have spiritual experiences like we do. <laughs> He's not spiritual the way that we are. And if you ever listened to him talk before, his oratory... Uh, Well, we all know he's not that good. We need a new leader, so said some. And yet, Paul is thankful for those gifts, however they have been misused, and thankful to the God that had favored them so richly, uh, the Jesus who had so freely given it to them. When I read this Thanksgiving section at the beginning, I think, man, I want to grow up and be like that. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, to have a heart that is large enough to be thankful for the gifts that God has given to others— even when we don't feel like those gifts are being rightly used, and especially when it feels like maybe they got a whole lot more of the gifting than even I have received. You know, Thanksgiving at the beginning of this letter is really, it's the opposite of envy, for to envy is to feel sorrow for another person's good. To to have Thanksgiving is to truly rejoice in their good, you know, and it takes a, a tremendously large heart to do that when those are the people that are criticizing you and and even trying to kick you to the curb. Keep this in mind. Keep in mind that generally speaking, people change very slowly and irregularly, only rarely and superficially when they are shamed or condemned, and most especially when cheered on with encouragement, gracious accountability, and hope. Um, you know, Paul's going to end up, he's going to end up basically uh, criticizing them on nearly every page, but he this large heart of thanksgiving, this genuine thanks at the very beginning of the letter is what makes him able to do it without crushing their spirits. Okay, last, I should probably end the sermon right here because I'm out of time, but whenever a preacher says that, you know that there's one more piece coming. Um, I want to show you one more important feature of of this section of the letter that we will return to again. I feel like I've said that a lot this morning or this afternoon, but we'll return to this again and it is the tension between the stick and the carrot verses 8 and 9 paul he makes this incredible promise to them did you catch it that jesus or god the father will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless the day of our lord jesus christ god is faithful you who are called by him into fellowship with his son jesus Christ is Lord. An incredible promise about how God will preserve them and their faith until the return of Jesus to earth. Um, What a promise. And it sounds like a very settled promise. Like God is going to do it all. He's going to present you blameless on the last day. But then, as we go on in the letter, yeah, there are quite a few hard words that he speaks. Like in the third chapter, after he's criticized them for all of the divisions they have among them, he basically, he says to them, very directly, he says, don't you know that you are a temple of God's Holy Spirit? And if God, if someone destroys God's temple, God will destroy them. You know, multiple times in the letter, he he, he will basically say things that certainly sound like, uh, um, if you don't live a godly life, you'll end up being judged later on he'll say um the righteous will not inherit the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of god so what's going on like are the promises real and the warnings kind of suspect or are the 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 warnings suspect are the, the promises real i think what we'll discover i hope what we'll discover is that there is a real tension that exists between the promises and the warnings um you know, oftentimes the way this is treated is people will say, well, the, yeah, the assurances are real, and the, the warnings don't really apply to you as Christians. Or the, the warnings really apply, apply to you, um, and the assurances aren't as rock solid as you think they are. I don't think that this is an illogical mess that can't be settled. I'll give you the short answer to the attention, or to the question, that is. Paul believes that his warnings are the way that people will preserve, uh, persevere and be preserved down to the end. Like, like he, he sees himself as an ambassador of Jesus, and these letters and these warnings that that are, um, that are delivered are Jesus' deliberate way to keep them from making a shipwreck of their faith, and to deliver them, you know, across the finish line at the very end. And so, uh, they do apply. They, they are real. And we're going to have to wrestle with them and listen very carefully to them as we continue on. More of that for another day. Uh, In conclusion, suffice to say, the uh, Corinthian Christians had a lot of Corinth still in them, and they needed a whole lot more of the gospel, more of Jesus. In them, and that is what Paul and the Holy Spirit attempts to do in this letter, is to bring Christ to bear in in them uh, fully. Like, I think Jesus, his name in these first nine verses appears 11 times, and again and again, he's just going to take them back to Christ, to Christ, to the gospel. Um, that's what Paul's aim is for them and for us, and I'm just really thankful that we have the opportunity to read uh, this mail that was intended for somebody else and, and make, it, uh, make it our own. Amen.